Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to give you the wrong impression. I'm going to make all the balancing statements right here up front because I know I have some family members who tune into this and are watching this. All right. I am grateful that I was raised with a decent Christian upbringing. Let me say that first. I'm grateful for all the exposure to the church, to the Christian faith, to the biblical truth. It was sometimes infrequent and often chaotic, but I'm thankful for it. But one thing I do remember is how I was taught some pretty novel interpretations of the Bible's teachings on the end times. And I think more than anything else in my Christian life, those misunderstandings led to some serious anxiety and some serious confusion, some despair. I was always concerned for my own personal salvation. Was my decision for Jesus sincere enough? How would I know? I was terrified that I would be left behind. And I was worried that I would be riding in a car with someone who was a true believer, and that person would be whisked away out of the driver's seat, and I would go crashing into a lake. These are real fears that I lived with. It sounds silly, of course, but beliefs have real consequences. They play themselves out in your life every day. And if you weren't here last week, we began this three-week sermon series in 2 Thessalonians. We looked at chapter 1 last week. And if you need to catch up, we have a podcast with the sermon audio on the podcast. Go to Apple Podcasts, go to Fortress Lutheran Church, or go to Spotify. Those are loaded up there for you. Not so that Fortress will get a major platform or anything. They're for your use. They're for your benefit. Go catch up if you need to. But in that chapter 1, Paul, uh, Paul lays this encouragement thick upon the Thessalonian Christians. He has to do this because they've got some false beliefs about the end times. They're actually led to several troubling places about the nature uh, of the coming of Christ. And you and I, like those Thessalonian Christians, we've been living in those end times ever since Jesus rose again from the dead. And so Paul writes to his Christian friends in Thessalonica, uh, sorry, in Thessalonica, he writes them this second letter to straighten them out on this teaching of the end times. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 2 today, and we're going to look at three things. If you have a Bible with you, or if you have a device or an app or something like that, I encourage you to follow along with me. This is a good habit to get into, especially when we're going through the epistles, because I want you to be able to track where I'm at, and uh, I want you to understand and be comfortable that I'm not making this up, Okay. So pull out your Bibles, pull out your devices if you have them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to split it up this way. We're going to look at the error, the revealing, and the assurance. So we begin with the error, which is the first few verses here. Verses 1 through 4, um, or let's just do first couple of verses here. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. It is clear in everything that it teaches 
on matters of our salvation and our faith in Christ. It's clear. So any average person ought to be able to pick up something like the Gospel of John and read through it and know the basics of what is there. That's the clear, the clarity with which the Scriptures speak. However, there are other parts of Scripture that you and I know that deal with more difficult teachings in the Bible. That These teachings that aren't always the most accessible to everyone. We even have the Apostle Peter mentioning in his second epistle, he actually tells the churches how Paul's writings are difficult to understand. This is the head apostle talking about Paul's writings being difficult. All right? So you're in good company. The Apostle Peter said so too. Now, to properly understand the Scriptures, it often requires our diligence, it requires our thinking caps, and the power of the Holy Spirit, of course. Now, all of that is made infinitely more difficult when there's false teaching thrown into the mix. It's kind of like you having a bucket of white paint and just a dabble of black gets thrown in. Well, now it's not the same, is it? We don't have white anymore, do we? We've got something else altogether. You know how that goes. All right, so these Thessalonian Christians, they were actually vexed. Uh, they were disturbed by Paul's first letter, which is 1 Thessalonians. Not because Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired words were insufficient. It's not because there was a problem with Paul's words, all right? But because they had some false teachers who were muddying those waters, who were leading them to misinterpret Paul. Now, either they were speaking under this presumed authority of Paul, or they had actually written a letter uh, uh, that they forged this letter pretending to be Paul. That's what the apostle says. But either way, either way, they had the Christians thinking that the second coming of Christ was happening as they spoke or that it had already taken place. This was the false impression that the Thessalonian Christians were under. You can see how this was cause for great despair. All right? Because these guys were undergoing some intense persecution, some really difficult experiences, stuff that you and I can't even fathom. They were facing real hardship, real misery that comes from persecution. They were not experiencing that perfection of spirit, soul, and body that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians. So they were terrified. They thought that maybe they had missed the boat. If Christ had already come, these guys were left to pick up the pieces. You can see how this would be very disturbing to them if that's what you really believed. This goes to show that even if we're even off by a smidge on something that God has said, it will lead into one of two places. If we're off on our understanding of God's Word, and what it teaches, it will lead us to pride or it will lead us to despair. Either of those two places. So it's critical that we be wary of false teachings about the end times, the stuff that's out there. People who want to peddle their books to you. People who want to build a platform based on astronomical phenomena. Because if you listen to bad teaching, if you read bad literature, if you misunderstand the biblical and historic confession of the church concerning Christ's return, it will lead to some bad fruit. It will. 
Here's what a proper view of the end times should give you. I'm going to make it really simple for you today. So you're not going to leave this place with a million questions, hopefully not. But here's what it should lead you to. It should lead you to sobriety. It should lead you to self-control and watchfulness. That's what a proper view of the end times does for you. It should not throw you into either spiritual laziness and it should not throw you into an, un an unholy panic. You should not be panicked by these teachings and you should not be lazy with these teachings. One commentator put it this way. He said, Christians are to keep their heads against error and, f and fanatic notions. So let's keep our heads about us. He says, the truth of God is sane and never unbalances the mind. The truth of God is sane. You can lay your head on your pillow at night knowing that what God says is sane. It is true. It is good. It will give you peace. It will give you comfort. So what I'm suggesting is that if we stick with the simple truth of what we confess in the creed, that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ who will return once to judge the living and the dead, we'll be fine. Those same words that we confess every single time we gather together, that's what you need to know about the Lord's return. Don't be fooled by the quacks who pull out the charts and pull out the books and they talk about that heavenly phenomenon. They make false predictions about this or that. Don't be fooled. Verse 3. Verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. All right? Don't let the quacks deceive you. Keep going. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So here's how Paul goes about correcting their error. He gives them something to look for. Here's what's going to happen before the Lord returns. Here's how you know that he hasn't come back yet. Here's what needs to happen first, right? These false teachers, they were violating the second commandment, presuming to be speaking in God's name. They were violating God's commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. But they were only to be outdone by this one called the man of lawlessness. And this ultimate false teacher would come and lead many to apostatize or to fall away, is what that means. To apostatize. He would do it by taking his seat in God's church and proclaim himself to be God, to be the way to salvation, to set himself above all true and false religion. Paul calls him the son of destruction. Which, interestingly enough, that's what Jesus calls Judas in John 17. This man of lawlessness would be a, a fulfillment. He would be an antitype, if I can use that word, of Judas. Now, here's the big reveal. Almost all biblical scholars take this title, man of lawlessness, as a reference to the Antichrist. Who is the Antichrist? And what can we expect? You ready? The word Antichrist is used regularly in John's first epistle. All right? And there, in John's epistle, it describes a principle rather than a person. 
It is a principle that an antichrist is anyone who deceives others about God and his word. And therefore, there are many antichrists, small a. But Paul, in this, pas- in this passage, seems to indicate that the principle of antichrist would be concentrated in one man, in one place. And for the reformers in Martin Luther's day, there was no question about this revealing of the man of lawlessness. For them, the office of the papacy fit all of those descriptions, fit all of the criteria that a man had taken the seat of Christ in his church, that he set himself over all true and false religion, that he would lead many astray with his deceptive teachings that point away from Christ rather than to him. Now that I got that out for us to kind of examine, let me make a couple of balancing statements here. This is not to say that every single pope should be considered the Antichrist or that every Roman Catholic is condemned. Don't leave this place thinking that in your head today. Oh, Vicar Ryan, he just condemned the entire Catholic Church. That's not what I said. All right? This is to say that the office of the papacy, insofar as it denies the gospel and teaches people to trust in their own merits rather than in Christ, is Antichrist. That's the definition of Antichrist. Pointing away from Jesus into something else is Antichrist. It's not popular, I get it. But I challenge you to do a basic study of the Reformation and get a a fuller picture of what the Lutheran reformers were up against and speak with me about that anytime if you are interested in investigating more. Let's continue with verse 5. It says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So it's, it's unclear to us what those things were that were restraining the Antichrist in Paul's day. That, that those things that kept him from being revealed. And I have my own opinions on the matter that I'm not going to share here. You can always ask me later. But concerning Jesus' dealings with this Antichrist, this is what we need to know. His word, Jesus' word, is poison to the man of lawlessness. Jesus' word combats every Antichrist spirit in every day and age, and Jesus will put an end to the Antichrist and all who afflict the true church on the last day. It's Jesus' word that does this work. It's Jesus' word that puts to flight all false teachings and all errors, all heresies that would condemn us. So we have here, church, another exhortation, another encouragement to be trained in the word. That the Lord Jesus would fight for you every single day as you withstand the attacks of the enemy and his false teachers. Keep going in our Bible. And here's the bit that our lectionary reading didn't include. So it says this, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion 
so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Here's more activity of the Antichrist. He's a handy tool for Satan. All Satan has to do is to get you to look away from Christ and look at something else. This Antichrist will lead many away from the true faith with false miracles. And those who refuse the truth of the gospel, that is, it is through Jesus Christ and Him alone that we gain eternal life, it says that God will give them up to their own desires and their own delusions. If they do not want the truth, God will say, okay, have it your way. But today, today, you have the assurance that this will not be the case for you. Just as Paul had confidence that the Thessalonian Christians would persevere through hard, that they would persevere through hard times, that they would reap the rewards of eternal life on account of Christ, we too derive that same comfort. That despite this difficult teaching on the Antichrist, this controversial subject, despite this difficulty of thinking about a great apostasy, a, a following falling away from the faith, we have the same comfort that the Thessalonian Christians did. Text says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We confess the creed every Sunday and the work of the Holy Spirit. You know from your study of the small catechism that the Holy Spirit has called you by the gospel, that he has enlightened you with his gifts, sanctified and kept you in the one true faith. You didn't choose him. You didn't have the reason or the strength for that. He chose you, each and every single one of you. And it's his good pleasure, church, to keep you in this one true faith until the end where you will receive the heavenly, the heavenly glory of the risen Christ. If the reformers were correct, think about this with me. If the reformers were correct, then hey, it means the Antichrist has already come. The great apostasy has already occurred in some form throughout history. So what else is left, church? What else is left to be fulfilled in the Scriptures? What else are we to expect in these end times? There's only one more promise for God to make good on. Hmm? One more. And because of that promise, we can hang in there. As Paul says in verse 13, he says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Stick to the truth of the Scriptures. Stick to what we confess in the creeds. Stick to what you have learned in the small catechism. Live in those texts. Use them in your daily life. Whenever we look around and we see others falling away from the faith, 
where we see others who have been misled by false teachings, whether those false teachings come from outside of the church or from inside the church, it should not cause us to lose confidence in God's promises. Rather, that should spur us on to cling all the more to his promises. St. Paul was confident in God's work with the Thessalonian Christians. And I would suggest that he would be confident in you as well. Because you hold to the same gospel that they did. That's why. It's not that the Apostle Paul would look at our church and be really impressed by us. He would look at our church and see the same gospel. And because of that same gospel, he would have confidence. Just like you and I have confidence. So there's one more promise left for the Lord Jesus to fulfill. It's his return. That's the one we're waiting on, right? That gives us great hope, great encouragement. It means that we can withstand anything. Hey, all we have to do is hang in there for a little while longer, right? Do not be misled by false teachers. Know that there's only one more promise left to fulfill and know that Christ will keep you until he comes on that day that Paul talked about so long ago. So we conclude today with St. Paul's blessing in verses 16 through 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.